0: Hey, what next, listener? I've got something special for you today while we catch our breath over the holidays. It comes from one of my favorite Slate podcasts, One Year. Their latest season goes all the way back to 1942. And in the spring of that year, a new nightly radio show hit the American airwaves. The stated goal of Station Debunk was to correct all the disinformation about America's involvement in the war. But the real story was a whole lot stranger and more devious than it seems. We'll be back with new episodes of What Next? next week. In the meantime, enjoy this episode of One Year and subscribe to that podcast wherever you listen. Okay, here's Josh Levine with the episode The Info Wars of World War II.
1: Before we begin, a quick note. This episode contains World War II-era recordings of offensive language. In his first fireside chat after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor... Franklin Roosevelt didn't try to put a positive spin on things.
2: So far, the news has been all bad. The casualty lists of these first few days will undoubtedly be large.
1: The president vowed that he would always tell the truth about the war, regardless of how troubling the reports turned out to be. But he said that his fellow citizens would need to stick to the facts, too.
2: Most earnestly, I urge my countrymen to reject all rumors. These ugly little hints of complete disaster fly thick and fast in wartime.
1: FDR was worried that gossiping Americans might give up real, valuable information to Axis spies. That loose lips might sink ships. But the government also wanted to clamp down on phony rumors made-up stories that could damage morale on the home front. And in 1942, that kind of misinformation was everywhere. There were conspiracy theories about the Japanese putting glass in people's food, about a war worker punching holes in gas masks, and about barns getting painted to make them easier targets for Axis bombers.
3: Rumor-mongering could destroy unity in thinking that maybe someone is not Playing their fair share, doing their part, somehow aiding the enemy. Tracy Campbell
1: is the author of The Year of Peril, America in 1942.
3: Information is critical at all times, but particularly when you're facing a common enemy. All these rumors you can imagine had a, a great deal of power. For
1: the American people to stay united, the Roosevelt administration needed to slow down the rumor mill. So in 1942, they built a whole new bureaucracy to take on, essentially, fake news.
3: The Office of War Information created something called the War Rumor Project. It consisted of a considerable network of people who were reporting back to their local officials who would then report back to Washington about what they were hearing. The
1: War Rumor Project was a nationwide surveillance program. The people running it believed that rumors traveled along social networks— So the project sought out volunteers who had a lot of connections.
3: There was one in Louisville, Kentucky, named Betty Cartwright, who was a beauty parlor operator. And there was a dentist in San Francisco, George Peters, who said that his patients weren't telling him a lot when they were in the chair, but he would go to the local YMCA to see if he could hear more.
1: Those beauty parlor operators and dentists collected more than 5,000 rumors in 1942. Gathering all that scuttlebutt, was phase one. Phase two was debunking it.
3: At the heart of it was the notion that ignorance was the root of it all, and therefore, if you could get out in front of that and inform people by giving them the correct information, that that would stop it in its tracks. The Office of War
1: Information tried to correct the record on its own by distributing educational materials. The government also collaborated with some of the entertainment world's most creative minds.
2: The hot air is blowing. A rumor is growing. They're gonna bomb us. They're
4: gonna bomb us. They're about to bombing.
1: A cartoon produced by Warner Brothers showed a character named Private Snafu wrapped in a straitjacket, driven mad by wartime lies.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Nice weather for a rumor.
1: Newspapers also launched their own fact checking operations, known as rumor clinics. And in March 1942, a new nightly radio show hit the airwaves all over the country.
2: This is Station Debunk, the station of all free Americans. If you know how to write shorthand, we suggest you take down all our programs and type them out on your typewriter.
1: The goal of Station Debunk was to correct all the lies getting tossed around about America's involvement in World War II. At least, that's what it said it was doing. But the real story of that nightly show was a whole lot stranger and more devious than it appeared. Station Debunk was a weapon in a global information war. And the man pulling the trigger wasn't who he claimed to be. This is One Year, 1942, the Infowars of World War II. In
5: 1942,
1: everyone in America wanted to know what was happening overseas as soon as they possibly could. Newspapers didn't bring that kind of immediacy. And newsreels seemed to emphasize patriotism more than journalism. But radio was different. It felt like the perfect medium for World War II.
2: Time now for an early morning roundup of the day's news from the war fronts of the world.
5: In the United States, I believe the statistic was that 75 million people had access to a radio. So you've got a way to reach people in their living rooms. Will
1: Studdard is a research fellow at the University of Hamburg. He's the author of The Jazz War,
5: Radio, Nazism, and the Struggle for the Airwaves in World War II. You can reach more people with it. The fact that it's an auditory medium, and again, this is really important in wartime, you don't need to spend the time to sit down and read it.
2: The Russians are telling of a party of 93 Soviet border guards, which operated for three months behind the German lines. The guards now have reached Russian-held territory again, And they say they killed more than 1,400 German officers and men during their jaunt.
1: It wasn't just Americans who wanted to hear the latest from the front lines. People all over the world were desperate for news. In Germany, one of Hitler's closest allies did whatever
5: he could to take advantage of that desperation. You could say Goebbels really kind of defined the idea of radio propaganda. I mean, until Goebbels, the word propaganda didn't even necessarily have these negative connotations that it has now. Joseph Goebbels
1: was the Nazis' minister for public enlightenment and propaganda. He controlled every aspect of the German media. In the 1930s, he staged massive book burnings and financed Lenny Riefenstahl's documentary on the Berlin Olympics. But Goebbels thought the radio was the most important invention since the printing press, and he made it his mission to place one inside every German
5: household. The people's receiver that they deliberately made very cheap so that everybody had access or could be reached by Nazi propaganda in their own homes.
2: The Rundfunk gehört uns. And the Rundfunk werden wir in den Dienst unserer Idee
1: but Goebbels understood that people wouldn't tune in if they were just getting lectured all day.
5: Goebbels basically realized that people want to be entertained. He was trying to give them modern broadcasting, modern music within limits. In 1941, he redesigned the country's nightly
1: radio lineup to focus on comedy, entertainment and relaxation.
0: Then wünschen
4: wir, dass das starke Gefühl, das uns in der Heimat mit euch verbindet, in eurem
1: Herzen That was partly to make his propaganda go down more easily. But Goebbels was also thinking about the competition. In his diary, he wrote, Better light music than foreign propaganda. Goebbels was concerned about British radio infiltrating German homes. The BBC produced 80 German-language broadcasts per week, beaming over the news of the day, popular music, and political commentary. ——
2: In 1942,
1: the BBC also loaned its transmitters to a new U.S. broadcasting service, Voice of America. German radios carried a label that said listening to these foreign stations was punishable by prison and hard labor. But plenty of Germans ignored that warning. To avoid detection, they just turned down the volume as low as it could go. The Nazis weren't just playing defense against enemy broadcasters in 1942. They also had their own army of radio hosts.
2: The decisive campaign of the war has been won by Germany, who now commands the English Channel and the North Sea. The French are demoralized beyond repair.
5: Lord ho this was William Joyce, the British Nazi broadcaster. He started every broadcast with this very sort of threatening Germany calling Germany calling, Germany calling, Germany calling,
2: Germany calling,
5: Which was very, very famous during the war. And basically he became Goebbels' star English-language broadcaster. And particularly in the early months of the war, you can say he was extremely successful. At Lord HaHa's
1: peak, one in six people in Britain tuned in to hear him glorify the Third
5: Reich and savage its enemies. He's attacking Jewish interests, he's attacking plutocrats, he's attacking the conservatives. Basically, every area of his attack was targeted at one particular possible group that was discontented in Britain. Anti-Semites, communists, working class, targeting these lines at existing strands of public opinion.
1: Another of Germany's propaganda stars was an American expat. From the Empire,
2: it says to listen in. Because there's an American girl sitting at the microphone every Tuesday evening at the same time with a few words of truth. To
1: her Mildred Gillers' broadcasts targeted Allied troops stationed in Europe. She became known as Axis Sally. why I'm just
2: going to put all the energy I can into these few moments I have with you each week and try
5: to get you to see the light of day. She had one program called Home Sweet Home, targeting american forces which did exactly as the title suggests it was designed to awaken homesickness she would play with ideas of sexual jealousy you know do you know where your girls are tonight uh, make sure you return home in one piece she would appeal to self-preservation the english speaking press and the public saw lord haha
1: and axa sally as absurd figures over the top nazi
5: loving caricatures but that was all part of the germans plan You tune in once, you laugh, you think, oh, this is ridiculous, I'm going to tune in again. And then suddenly you've got more people tuning in and discussing it, and then they start saying, well, maybe they're right about A or B, maybe this is true.
1: Lord HaHa and Axis Sally didn't hide their affiliations with the Nazi regime. That meant anyone who listened in knew they were getting the German party line. But not every broadcast was so transparent. During World War II, Both the Axis and the Allies used radio in a much sneakier way. Those covert radio operations were known as black propaganda stations.
5: So black propaganda is propaganda where they conceal the source and where this concealment is actually an important part of its effectiveness.
1: The Americans' black propaganda stations
5: were run by the
1: Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA. One of their most successful projects was codenamed Radio Annie. Is 1212 with news
4: for the 1212
1: Radio Annie presented itself as a pro-German station. But every now and then, it included fabricated reports designed to induce panic in its German listeners. One fake news item about an imminent Allied bombing campaign inspired civilians to pile into their cars, creating a traffic jam that slowed down the German military. That phony bombing story worked because Radio Annie had built up its credibility. It seemed like a legitimate German broadcaster broadcasting legitimate news. That's a hallmark of the best black propaganda doesn't seem like propaganda at all. Joseph Goebbels understood that better than anyone else. In 1942, he opened a new front in the radio war. That March, a mysterious transmission started beaming into American living rooms. And listeners were left wondering, who did it come from? And was he telling the truth?
2: Is the friend of the people, but the bitter enemy of the war criminals in Washington and New York.
1: We'll be back in a minute.
0: This episode is brought to you by Discover.
1: The people who knew Herbert John Bergman in the early 1900s didn't think that much of him, just that he was conservative and quiet. Decades later, when he was one of the world's most infamous people, he still didn't cut a very impressive figure.
5: Time magazine said you could put him in a crimson cape and put a dagger in his sleeve and he'd still look like a grocery store attendant.
1: Historian Will Stuttert
5: again. So Bergman was from Minnesota? He came to Washington in 1917 and worked for the War Department until he was called up into the war. And then he was in France and Germany at the war's end.
1: Bergman was an army field clerk during World War I. His branch insignia was a pair of crossed
5: quill pens. In 1920, he married a German woman and was honorably discharged from the army at Koblenz in Germany and then moved to Berlin.
1: Bergman got a Ph.D. in political science and found a job at the U.S. Embassy. He worked there for more than 20 years, becoming the embassy's economic affairs specialist. At this point, Herbert Bergman hadn't done much of anything to draw attention to himself. That would change after the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor.
2: Remember always that Germany and Italy consider themselves at war with the United States at this moment.
1: In December 1941, the US Embassy in Berlin was thrown into total chaos. The telephones had all gone down, and staffers started burning sensitive files. A week after Pearl Harbor, more than a hundred embassy employees and their families made a mass exodus. Pretty much everyone met up at a train station, except Herbert John Bergman, his wife, and their son. He didn't actually refuse to leave, but he just didn't show up and then just remained behind. Bergman claimed he'd suffered a heart attack and was too sick to leave the country. But a few months later, he told a neighbor that he was backing Germany to beat the Allies. Bergman said, America is going to lose this war, hands down. In January 1942, he got the
5: chance to help make that happen. A couple of his papers on economics were passed on to a guy called Wagner at Berlin Radio, who was very impressed and said, we should call this guy in and offer him a job. That job was to help launch a new venture, a project unlike anything the Nazis had done before. Station Debunk was initiated in March 1942. And it was the most ambitious Nazi propaganda project to the American home front.
1: Joseph Goebbels had been pummeling the Allies with pro-German propaganda for years. But this would be something altogether different, a clandestine station that pretended to be broadcasting from within the United States. Herbert John Bergman would be the lead voice. On March 12, 1942, Station Debunk began its nightly broadcasts from a studio in Berlin. The top of the show was basically the same every night.
5: The national anthem would come on, and the 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 station station debunked the the station station for Americans. The early broadcasts would then play music, sometimes jazz music.
2: Before we start our program, we will entertain you with nobody's sweetheart.
1: When the music stopped, it was time for the star of the show to take the stage.
2: I am turning over the mic to Joe Scanlon, America's public debunker number one. Roll up your sleeves, Joe, and swing the ship of state around. Good
4: evening, everybody. President Roosevelt refers to his seven points as the national economic policy. During the past few days, I have made... Joe
1: Scanlon was Herbert Bergman's alias, a pseudonym to keep his true identity from becoming known in the United States. He told his listeners that he had super-secret intel that needed to be shared.
4: This report, most weighty in its aspects, has come to us through sources that we cannot disclose.
1: He emphasized over and over that Franklin Roosevelt was not to be trusted.
4: In either case, our answer to the president should be impeachment and his immediate removal from office.
1: And Station Debunk made it clear that if Joe Scanlon was asked to serve his country, he stood ready to answer that call.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, last night I announced that Joe Scanlon had consented to accept the office of President of the United States. Should Franklin D. Roosevelt be impeached now?
1: It would go on like this, minute after minute, with Joe Scanlon ranting about America's crimes. And then, after about a half hour the Star-Spangled Banner would pipe up one last time.
4: Station Debunk, the station of all free Americans, now signing off for tonight. Good night, everybody.
1: To my knowledge, the Station Debunk recordings that you're hearing in this episode have never been published before. We tracked them down at the National Archives on quarter-inch reel-to-reel audio tape. It's possible that just a handful of people in the last half century have even listened to them. But in 1942, Joe Scanlon's message was heard all over America. His voice got transmitted across the Atlantic Ocean on a shortwave frequency. In the 1940s, lots of consumer radios could tune into shortwave bands. Word of a new station could spread fast all over the U.S. But Joseph Goebbels was targeting one part of the country in particular, the Midwest.
2: Americans want no more war. Most of all, they want no more participation in foreign wars.
1: Lots of Americans believed that World War I had brought ordinary citizens no benefit while enriching bankers and weapons manufacturers. Those feelings of isolationism didn't vanish entirely in the 1920s and 30s, and they were strongest in the middle of the country, where people felt less worried about a possible foreign attack. And so when Joseph Goebbels wanted to create dissension in the U.S. This felt like the divide to exploit. Coastal cities versus America's heartland.
4: What good will it do a working man in Minneapolis after the war if we retain possession of the Bermuda Islands?
5: This is something common to all propaganda in the war from all sides. Just trying to exacerbate rifts between different groups, trying to make the target country dysfunctional.
4: What would the farmer or the working man win if we won the war? The farmers and working men would gain absolutely nothing.
1: Station Debunk claimed to be based out of the Midwest, and it did attract a Midwestern audience. But its most avid listeners were on the East Coast at an FCC facility in Silver Hill, Maryland. In 1942 government radio monitors used 34 receivers to tune into enemy broadcasts and wrote up reports on what they heard.
5: They'd be listening to the electronic recordings and then compiling these kind of digests or analyses of it. You see they're really trying to analyze the content and guess at the origin.
1: The FCC monitors didn't have to do too much guesswork. They figured out right away that Joe Scanlon was taking orders from Joseph Goebbels.
5: On the first report, they already say that debunk follows the official Nazi propaganda line. A few days after that, the AP
1: reported that this supposedly American show had been traced easily to Europe. But even though Station debunk's German origins got uncovered very quickly, it still got a lot of publicity. And that made it a potential threat. Joe Scanlon's radio show got written up in the biggest newspapers and magazines. According to the Saturday Evening Post, the message of Station Debunk was finding an audience. The article claimed that in 1942, this one German radio show was the main source in the entire United States for false, subversive tales.
4: Hello, folks. Hello, girls and boys. Hello, everybody. Debunk has inside information on all choice news items of the day.
1: Most nights, Joe Scanlon started the show by rattling off phony news updates, stories that played into every kind of prejudice.
4: Flash from San Francisco, California. Public health department officials stated confidentially yesterday it might become necessary to stop the flow of Mexican labor into the United States. Because of the large number of contagious diseases being carried into the country by the Mexicans.
5: So, you know, they can just invent this stuff, but it's difficult to serve, verify or refute because there's no sources on it.
4: Flash from Chicago, Illinois. A Polish immigrant by the name of Isidore Cohn has become a multimillionaire since the drives started to collect scrap rubber, scrap metal, and
1: other scrap. Joe Scanlon's claims about scrap drives hit America in a vulnerable spot. In 1942, those drives were an important symbol of shared sacrifice on the home front.
2: Scrap drive in America. A coast-to-coast campaign for getting unwanted metal to places where it is wanted. Here comes an old plane to join the contributions. The owner is joining the Marines.
1: But the Office of War Information found that the national scrap campaign was plagued by rumors just like the one station debunk was pushing that
3: metal drives were a plot to enrich Jewish businessmen. These rumors are kind of indicative of what happens in the middle of a crisis.
1: Historian Tracy Campbell says the Roosevelt administration's war rumor project found this exact type of innuendo circulating everywhere in America.
3: The largest category by far was called hate. That's how the government categorized it. They were called hate rumors, mostly centered on bigotry. You
4: and your Jewish and Jew-controlled henchmen are waxing fatter on the blood and sweat of the nation day by day, minute by minute.
1: The anti-Semitism that fed the Holocaust had lots of adherents in the United States, people who believed that Jews were running the war effort and that Roosevelt himself was a secret Jew. Nazi propaganda also exploited American racism. In 1942, German radio passed along the slander that black soldiers stationed in the South were systematically impregnating high school and college girls and giving those women sexually transmitted diseases.
3: These were similar rumors to what we can read about during Reconstruction and during the latter stages of the Civil War.
1: That kind of racist panic manifested in other ways, too.
3: The largest rumor by far was something called Eleanor Clubs. That was named after the first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt, that she was somehow organizing black domestic workers to go on strike.
1: Rumor had it that these Eleanor clubs had the motto A White Woman in Every Kitchen by 1943. One black woman in Mississippi supposedly told her white boss, I'm waiting on Mr. Hitler. When he gets here, I won't have to wash for you, but you'll have to wash for me. And in South Carolina, stories about a planned domestic rebellion were so pervasive that the governor ordered the state police to investigate. They found no evidence at all that these clubs existed. But they did issue a report saying that the white people appear to be considerably disturbed.
3: So the Eleanor clubs, while looking somewhat ridiculous on the surface, I think masked a very deep-seated racial fear that a lot of white Americans had at the time.
1: Station Debunk was peddling crazy pills to a rumor-mad nation. In 1942, it seemed like way too many people were swallowing them whole. And from his perch in Nazi Germany, Joe Scanlon was signing on every night, telling his American listeners to be careful who they trusted.
4: We have been living in a hothouse Heated by deceiving speeches and vicious inventions, the American people have been suffering from this misinformation for the last few years because they did not trust their own minds.
1: Let's take a quick break. I want to tell you about a project from Slate that I think you'll find fascinating. In the last decade, the word fascism has started showing up in conversation and headlines and in political rhetoric. But what does the word really mean? A few years ago, three of my colleagues produced a special series on fascism in the 20th century. They looked at fascism in six countries, starting during the period we're covering on this season of one year. Then, They use that knowledge to examine fascism today, in America, and the rest of the world. Slate's Fascism Academy is available only to Slate Plus members. Go to slate.com slash fascism to sign up today. Or, if you're already a member, you can use that link to listen to all six episodes right now. Again, that's slate.com slash fascism. When the American Herbert John Bergman became the Nazi radio host, Joe Scanlon, the Germans thought he was exactly who they were looking for. He was an authentic Midwesterner, highly educated, and a true believer in the Third Reich. The German propaganda ministry paid him like a star a salary of 1,500 marks per month, nine times the average wage for a German worker. And Bergman believed he was more than earning
5: his keep. He was very cocky, very uh, confident, or very convinced of his own success and his own influence. Author Will Stuttert. There were people saying he was bragging about the success of the station and its impact.
1: Bergman claimed that his show had tanked the American stock market and said that in one broadcast alone, he had won a success for Germany as great as a naval victory. One of Bergman's superiors at Radio Berlin was skeptical. That man thought station debunk was both unintelligent and unconvincing. But then the Germans read an American magazine article that claimed the Nazi's propaganda was actually working. That endorsement only made Bergman more self-assured.
2: Joe has a keen insight into world affairs. He is a deep thinker. He has a logical mind. He is the leading economist with both feet on the ground, who does not chase after rainbows, but is guided by common horse sense. He
1: said on the air that 99% of U.S. Army officers embezzled money, that General Douglas MacArthur had killed U.S. soldiers by running them over with his car, and that American military wives, who he identified by name, were working as prostitutes. Basically everything that came out of Joe Scanlon's mouth was an outrageous lie. But what I find most fascinating is how he said what he said. We have always been proud
4: of our president, but we must hide our heads in shame at the war-mongering of Roosevelt.
5: It's very word-heavy, very aggressive. There's also a kind of snarky, sarcastic, sneering tone to it that I think is also not necessarily the way that you appeal to listeners.
4: Roosevelt was ready for the second round. Step by step, he prepared for the big slaughter, never letting loose of the old
1: war dog. Will Studdart had learned about Bergman and Station Debunk by studying reports written by government radio monitors.
5: Reading the FCC reports, you don't get a sense of what I would say is kind of how poor a broadcaster he is. He doesn't sound very confident on a microphone, and he has an unpleasant voice. It is very hard to listen to. It's not just that
1: Joe Scanlon has no charisma. The whole show is deeply amateurish. Like here, when a guest comes on to praise Joe's takes on Roosevelt.
2: Yes, that's right, Joe. If the people of our country... Who were
1: a few minutes later, when Joe goes on another rant, that guest calls him Bill.
2: You're right, Bill. I remember how in his message of January 19...
1: So what was going on here? Joseph Goebbels had a reputation as a propaganda master. Why would he greenlight a show that sounded so terrible? Well, maybe that clumsiness was part of the plan. After all, the story Joe Scanlon told on the air was that Station Debunk was an underground operation.
5: This is this unprofessional set up somewhere in the Midwest, broadcasting of the voice of the real Americans. So you don't want to sound too professional. And what about the fact that the show's origins were so badly concealed
1: that the American media reported almost instantly that Station Debunk was coming from Europe? The FCC thought that might have been part of the Nazis' plan, too.
5: They make the suggestion that this publicized speculation may, you know, make it get more media attention which then will grow as listenership. This
1: is the three-dimensional chess theory of Station Debunk, that it was bad on purpose. And I don't really buy it. I mean, it wasn't like Herbert John Bergman had to beat out a thousand other fascist Midwesterners to get this Nazi radio
5: gig. Of course, we have to remember there's a complete dearth of manpower or potential speakers. In a way, you have to make do with what you've got. And yet, in 1942...
1: Americans listened to enough Nazi shortwave radio that it got blamed for launching all sorts of rumors. That the British were cruising around in cars fueled by rationed American gasoline. That Roosevelt was never going to pay off war bonds. That Jewish doctors were mixing blood from black and white patients. All of that stuff was swirling around as the Germans and Japanese piled up military victories. But by the tail end of 1942, the Axis wasn't winning anymore.
2: In the open steppe to the northwest of Stalingrad, Russian tanks and artillery are massing for an attack. The start of another hammer blow from the men who turned the ruins of the deathly city into a graveyard for German bodies and German boasting of a sure conquest.
1: As soon as the war turned around, even the highest quality German propaganda
5: was tough for anyone to swallow good propaganda should have some element of truth and you can distort details. You can leave out inconvenient elements.
1: But you can't convince somebody that the Nazis are winning the war when they're losing it.
5: Exactly. And they were still talking about the war will be over quickly. Uh, The war's going so well. And by 1942 in Berlin, people were heard joking on the streets, due to its great success, the war will be extended because nobody believed this stuff anymore.
1: With things tilting in the Allies' direction,
5: Station debunk didn't get
1: much attention after 1942. But Herbert John Bergman just kept blathering, all the way through to the final months of the war. The British Nazi William Joyce, better known as Lord Ha-Ha, stayed on the air to the very end.
2: I say, es lieber Deutschland. Heil Hitler, And farewell.
1: That was his final sign-off recorded on April 30th, 1945, the same day Adolf Hitler committed suicide. Later that month, Lord HaHa was captured by British troops near the Danish border. He was brought back to London, found guilty of treason, and sentenced to death.
2: A notice is posted proclaiming that Joyce has been hanged. That is the only end that traitors to the country can expect.
1: Army intelligence officers tracked down the American Nazi broadcaster Axis Sally in Berlin. Back in the United States, she was convicted of treason and sentenced to 10 to 30 years behind bars. And as for Herbert John Bergman, his Joe Scanlon Act didn't conceal his identity for very long. He was arrested in Frankfurt in 1945 and held for 19 months. Bergman was then released from detention when a U.S. Army psychiatrist declared
5: him mentally incompetent. And then he was rearrested and in 1949 reassessed and found mentally competent to stand trial and then faced 69 charges of treason. The man who'd once claimed he was going to succeed FDR
1: as president arrived back in the U.S. in February 1949 wearing a dark suit and flanked by military police. One journalist described the 53 year old Bergman as a terribly tired, little, bald headed man with great swirling eyebrows. When a photographer asked him to pose for a shot, he said, I'll make you a proposition. You can take my picture if you'll get me a lawyer. I haven't got a cent to my name. Bergman did eventually find a lawyer, the same one who'd represented Axis Sally.
5: His then defense was that he'd been insane the entire time he was broadcasting. There's a real pathos to having someone (laughs) claiming they're going to be the next president of the United States. And then a couple of years later saying, oh no, I was insane during the entire time and I can't stand trial. Bergman's wife
1: testified that he'd been institutionalized before his radio career began and had been terrified that doctors would blow his brains out with red lights. When Bergman himself took the stand, he claimed that the German secret police had forced him to become Joe Scanlon and had threatened to kill him if he left Berlin. He also admitted to writing the station debunk scripts, but this time he didn't brag about how great they were. He said, I didn't expect them to accomplish anything. I considered them trash and no good. Bergman was seated in a wheelchair when the jury returned its verdict. The Washington Post reported that his face was its usual pasty white.
5: He was convicted in the end of, I believe, 13 counts of treason, and he was mainly convicted on the evidence of these electronic recordings uh, collected by the FCC.
1: Herbert Bergman would be one of the last people ever found guilty of treason in the United States. There haven't been any other convictions since the early 1950s. Bergman got sentenced to 6 to 20 years in prison. He didn't live long enough to become a free man. He died of heart disease in 1953. Station Debunk has now been off the air for 77 years. For all the attention it got in the American press, it's hard to argue that it accomplished much at all.
5: Did it change anything in the war? Absolutely not. But that doesn't mean it wasn't of importance in 1942 or that it wasn't central to the Nazi attempts to cause trouble in the United States on the home front.
1: Those attempts to cause trouble did kind of work in 1942. The War Rumor Project was collecting venomous lies that sounded a lot like Joe Scanlon's talking points. But then, I think about that rumor about the Eleanor Clubs. That was the totally fake story about Black domestic workers forcing white women to cook their own meals So far as I know, Station Debunk never mentioned anything about that. I'd bet white Americans came up with that rumor all on their own. And honestly, I don't believe what the Saturday Evening Post said in 1942, that Station Debunk was the main source in the entire United States for false, subversive tales. That idea sounds sinister, that German propaganda geniuses were whispering poison in Americans' ears. But that notion, that the Nazis made us do it, is actually more comforting than what I think is the truth. The yes, there will always be bad actors nudging us, testing us, and lying to us. But whether it's 1942, or a year much closer to the present day, we don't need a foreign enemy, to make us believe the worst about each other. If you're a fan of the show, I'd love for you to sign up for Slate Plus. The support of Slate Plus members is crucial to our work. Members also get to listen to One Year without any ads. And you'll get a special behind-the-scenes episode with me and senior producer Evan Chung at the end of our season, explaining how we made these episodes about 1942. Go to slate.com slash plus to join Slate Plus today. That's slate.com slash oneyearplus. Next time on One Year. In 1942... Tens of thousands of Japanese Americans get sent to internment camps, but they're not the only ones. When Japan bombs the Aleutian Islands, the U.S. government forces Native Alaskans to abandon their homes and head off into an uncertain future.
3: Nobody knew what was going to happen. When we got on the boat, they did not know where they were going to take us. They didn't know how long we were going to be gone or if we were coming back.
1: One Year is written by me, Josh Levine. Our senior producer is Evan Chung. This episode was produced by Sam Kim, Sophie Summergrad, Evan Chung, and me. It was edited by Evan Chung and Derek John, Slate's senior supervising producer of narrative podcasts. Our senior technical director is Mary Jacob. Holly Allen created the artwork for this season. Tracy Campbell's book is The Year of Peril, America in 1942. And Will Studdard's book, is the jazz war, radio, Nazism, and the struggle for the airwaves in World War II. You can send us feedback and ideas and memories from 1942 at at and You can call us on the One Year hotline at 203-343-0777. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you to James Konachek from the National Archives at College Park. Special thanks to Christina Cotarucci, Susan Matthews, Sol Worthen, Bill Carey, Katie Rayford, Ben Richmond, Caitlin Schneider, Cleo Levin, Seth Brown, Rachel Strom, and Alicia Montgomery, Slate's VP of Audio. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more from 1942.